Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. How are you doing this morning? Uh, last week, I missed you guys. The church I was speaking at in Yukon told me to say to you guys, thanks for sharing me. But I listened to Chauncey's podcast, and I'm pretty sure y'all didn't miss me because it was good. Chauncey preached well last week. Um, hey, I want to start by echoing what Chauncey said a moment ago during our corporate prayer time. The Lenten season is a season in which Christians spend a lot of time in self-examination, repentance, turning from sin in order to spiritually prepare ourselves to celebrate Easter. But it's just really good to know that Jesus already rose from the grave. And before that, he died on the cross for our sins. And God says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will, what? He will forgive our sins and what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're here this morning feeling discouraged because of your sin and failure just know the holy spirit brings conviction of our sin because he loves us but not to shame us or to defeat us he's calling us into joy and it's already forgiven under the blood if you've trusted in jesus christ now today as we turn our attention to exodus chapter four we have an exciting story because moses finally decides to obey god for the last three weeks chauncey and i have been preaching to you from Exodus chapters, chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, which is basically a long argument that Moses is having with God. 
And just like all of my arguments with God, God wins. God wins the argument with Moses. God said to Moses, go. Everybody say go. God had a mission for Moses and he said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses really likes God's commitment to redeem the people of Israel. Moses wants the people of Israel to experience God's saving grace. But Moses does not want to be the human instrument that God is going to use to save the people because there's a high price tag that comes with that vocation. So Moses has a lot of excuses, but as we've seen over the last few weeks, God comforts Moses, God encourages Moses, God instructs Moses, God warns Moses, and ultimately God in his grace woos Moses towards obedience. And that's what we see in verse 20. Look with me at verse 20 of our text today. This is a big step. Moses is crossing a threshold into an important new season of his life in verse 20. After getting the blessing from his father-in-law Jethro, we read here in verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It's been 40 years since Moses left Egypt. And you may remember that that was not an encouraging day in Moses' life. Moses fled Egypt being pursued by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful person in the land, who was trying to kill him. And Moses left Egypt thinking he would never see his family again. He would never see his homeland again. He was going to be in exile for the rest of his life. So that's the grief and the fear and the pain with which Moses left Egypt. But then God blessed him with a family and a mentor and flocks and herds. And now he has grown comfortable in exile. And God is sending him back. To be the deliverer of his people. And I want you to think about the fact that when Moses left, he was very vulnerable. And from a human perspective, he has not become any less vulnerable. He's still just one guy. And he's got his wife and kids with him. But if anything, that makes him more vulnerable because he's got to protect them now too. These are not like warrior sons. These are people who are vulnerable that Moses has to protect. So from a human perspective, it looks like... This is a very dangerous, perhaps foolhardy location, but I love this phrase at the end of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Because as we've seen over the last couple of chapters, the staff of God has always has has already come to represent the presence of God and the power of God going with the servant of God. Kind of like when Jesus said to us, all authority has been given to me and I'll be with you wherever you go. So we don't have to be afraid. Now, this step that Moses takes is the first step on what I want to call the adventure of obedience today. That's the title of my text. Everybody say the adventure of obedience. This is the start of something. A lifestyle of obedience to God is beginning for Moses. And it's going to be exciting. Moses is going to get to know God in deeper ways than he's ever imagined were possible. Moses is going to be transformed from a man who is scared and faithless to a man who's a paragon of faith and courage. Moses is going to get to participate with God in bringing God's love and hope and redemption into the world. It's going to be an exciting adventure, but it's not going to be easy and smooth sailing. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs 
along the road. When we walk with God on the adventure of obedience, there's high days and low days. When we follow Jesus on this adventure of discipleship, there's encouraging days. Amen. And discouraging days. Amen. For that one too. There's days in which we're experiencing and we could feel God's life flowing through us, bearing fruit. And there's days in which we're trying to abide in Jesus, but it just feels barren. There's highs and there's lows. Moses is going to experience a lot of that just in the first couple days of this adventure to obedience. Let's quickly trace some of the ups and downs through our passage and in just a little bit to chapter 5. In verse 20, Moses begins the adventure of obedience. I already read that. And then in verses 21 and 23, God gives Moses some really encouraging words. It's a good time. That's an up moment. And then in verse 24, God almost kills Moses because he's mad at him. I'd say that's a down moment. That's a down moment. We'll come back and talk more about this. But because of his sin, God comes to discipline Moses and almost kills him. Then in verses 25 and 26, the wife of Moses, Zipporah, intercedes for him and God spares his life. Which already makes me think, as I look around this church and think about myself, how many of us husbands are only alive today because we had a wife who interceded for us? Anybody relate to that? Thank God for a praying wife. For that matter, thank God for a praying husband, a praying friend, a praying father, grandmother, anybody that prays for me. I need them in my life. But because of Zipporah's prayer, Moses is spared. That's a good moment. That's an up. And then we get a couple of ups in a row. Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron. It's a sweet and moving moment. Let's read it real quick. Verses 27 through 29. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Just like God spoke to Moses, so God spoke to Aaron. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Can you imagine watching that embrace? Can you imagine feeling that embrace? These brothers never thought they would see each other. It's been decades since they've seen each other. But God can reunify and reunite families that have been ripped apart. And God does it here for Moses and Aaron. And look at the terms on which they meet. Verse 28, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. What a great family redemption story. We've been separated for decades. We never thought we would get to even relate to each other. And now God separately appeared to Moses and to Aaron, and the brothers meet on the mountain and kiss each other. And now they say, God is sending us to be his agent of redemptions to rescue his people. That's an up moment. There's another up moment at the end of the chapter. In verses 30 and 31, Moses and Aaron go to tell the elders of the people of Israel that God has sent them. And they show the signs. Aaron throws the staff on the ground. The staff turns into a snake. Aaron picks up the staff. It turns back into a staff. Picks up the the snake. It turns back into a staff. They show the people the signs. They tell the people, God sees you. God hears you. God loves you. God is about to set you free from your slavery. And the text says that the elders of the people of Israel believed the word of the Lord. And they were encouraged because they 
now understood that through all those long years, God had seen them in their affliction and cared for them and planned to redeem them. And the text says they worshiped God. That's a good moment in ministry, isn't it? Moses gets an encouraging start. But then chapter five, next week, Chauncey's going to preach to us from chapter five. And in chapter five, here's what happens. God goes, uh, excuse me, Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, says, the Lord told me to let his people go, told me to tell you to let his people go. And that makes Pharaoh mad. And so Pharaoh does not let the people go. In fact, what he does is make their labor harder. He oppresses them more harshly than before. And when that happens, the people of Israel turn on Moses and Aaron and start criticizing him. Why did you come to make our lives harder? And then Moses gets discouraged very quickly and says, God, why did you send me here? I told you I'm not good at this. You should have sent somebody else. And just reverts back into his doubt. Now, this one feels very relevant to me. I don't know if you've been there. Have you ever been there where... You sense God is calling you to do something, to, to love somebody. God has loved you so much, and now you want to share that love, and you try to help somebody, and you pour yourself out. You put yourself out there to try and help people. And not only does it not go well, but after you've been trying to help people for a while, you feel like their lives are worse. And then they turn and get mad at you and criticize you, and you get discouraged. Should I take a poll? See if you've ever been there. I won't take a poll. This may be too raw. For me, it's been like the last 72 hours once or twice. Like this is a common experience in the life of ministry. So that's a down moment. So, so far, what I'm trying to say is we got an up and then a down, a pretty low down, almost got killed by God. And then up, up, up and down. It's a roller coaster ride. A lot of ups and a lot of downs. Two o'clock this morning. We sent 20-something of our people to drive to Colorado Springs for a discipleship conference in Glen Erie, Colorado at the Navigator's headquarters. And I'm not sure which route they took, but either way, they spent the first part of their journey in Oklahoma and then either Kansas or West Texas. That was flat. And then they got from Colorado, and it stopped being flat. It got to Colorado. It started being up and down and up and down and up and down. And what I'm trying to say to you is, in your spiritual life, if you embark upon the adventure of obedience, there may be some flat Oklahoma roads, but there's going to be a lot of Colorado roads. A lot of ups and a lot of downs. A lot of really encouraging times and a lot of really discouraging times. Seasons of visible fruit where you're pouring into others and you see people responding to the gospel and lives are being changed and everybody's saying thank you so much it means so much to me that you would love me and seasons in which you see no visible fruit and people don't say thank you they may say some other stuff though seasons in which the experience of life together in christian community feels great and seasons where it feels hard and everybody's grumbling like they grumbled against moses up seasons and down seasons. And if you don't already see this, I just want to say, family of God, church family, disciples of Jesus, we need to see our story in the story of Moses. Like Moses, we were minding our own business when Jesus confronted us with his grace and Jesus called us by name. We heard the gospel. 
the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again so we could be forgiven by faith in his name. And some of us made that choice to trust in Jesus Christ, but then we were kind of reluctant. We argued with Jesus, but he, by his grace, instructed us and encouraged us and disciplined us when we need us and jump-started us on this adventure of obedience. Like Moses, this is going to be a long journey. There's going to be some ups. Everybody say up days. And there's going to be some down days. And as we walk along in those up days and down days, there's going to be times where we, like Moses, are encouraged and feeling good. And there's going to be times where we, like Moses, get discouraged and feel bad. But guess what, friends? There are some constant things in those days. Namely, God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, says Hebrews 13.8. He does not change. Not only that, but listen to this. God has many good purposes for Moses in this story, and he has many good purposes for you in your lifetime of discipleship. Here's one of them. God wants to use you to change the world, to bring life and hope and forgiveness into the world, just like Moses. Here's another one. God wants to transform you to be the holy, beautiful God-fearing, God-loving person that he made you to be, just like Moses. Here's the best gift of all. God wants you to know God. God wants you to know God. And guess what, friends? All of that stuff happens on the up days, and it happens on the down days. As a matter of fact, often our greatest spiritual lessons are learned on, guess what? Guess what? On the up days or the down days? The down days. This week I was reading a book that had a quote that I don't like, but I'm afraid might be true. A Christian spiritual teacher made the observation that God teaches us just as much in, through our failures as our successes. And then he said, as a matter of fact, after the age of 35, that we may not have much to learn from our successes. We have a lot to learn from our failures. That made me a little nervous because I'm 34. And my flesh immediately wanted to say, God, for one more year, there's a lot that I can learn from successes, Lord. Bring it on. <laughs> you know? But here's the thing. that This guy was not trying to say God doesn't want you to succeed after you're 35. That's not what he was saying. As a matter of fact, Moses is going to have some very successful, beautiful, exciting, victorious moments in his 80s and 90s. Moses is going to get to stand there when the Red Sea is parted. Moses is going to get to stand there after that Red Sea crashes down on the evil oppressors of God's people. And then he's going to get to watch his sister who was there on the day his life was saved and spared. She's going to pick up a tambourine and start leading thousands of the women of Israel to praise and worship God. They're going to have victorious moments in late in life. And God has that for us too, I believe. But the point is, often our greatest spiritual gains will come on the down days. And already in the midst of these ups and downs, perhaps the most important thing to happen is that Moses, whom God has chosen to be a leader of his people, has begun to learn some very important spiritual lessons. For the remainder of the time I have to share with you today, I just want to point out to you, what are some of the things Moses is learning about God and himself in the midst of these ups and downs? See, Moses is probably in a mindset that is thinking the most important thing about what I'm doing right now is what progress are we making to get the people out of Egypt? 
But really, God's going to get the people out of Egypt. And it seems like God is at least as interested in transforming Moses to be a man who knows God. That also might be true in our lives. God really wants to use us to disciple our children to walk with God and to share the gospel with lost people in our neighborhood, our workplace, our schools. God wants to do wonderful things through us to bring his love and justice and peace to our community. But it may be that God is just as concerned in your life about you becoming more like Jesus, about you becoming a person that God knows. So let's just take a second to look at what are some of the spiritual lessons that God is teaching Moses. Here's one really important one that Moses needs to remember for the journey ahead and that we need to remember for the journey ahead. God knows the future and rules with sovereign power over the events of human history. This is the lesson Moses needs to learn. And it's a lesson God is emphasizing in verses 21 through 23. Look back at them with me again. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart. That's a phrase that requires some meditation. So that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn, firstborn son. Now, this is both a heavy passage and an encouraging passage. But what I want you to see here is two things. God already knows everything that's going to happen. We get surprised by life, but God does not get surprised by life. God knows the future. And not only does he know it, but he sits on a throne as sovereign king over the streams of human history. God knows the future. Now, this phrase, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, is one that I said we need to pause to think about. The, the key encouraging point that God is making is this. God's sovereignty extends over all of reality, including the reality that evil people and evil demons rebel against God. But God foresees that rebellion, and God in his sovereign providential governance of his creation is able to incorporate that rebellion into his redemptive purposes, his purposes to bless and to save. That's the main point being made here. We also want to clarify, lest we misunderstand scripture and the Christian theological tradition over and over emphasize to us that God is not the author of author of evil. God is not the author of evil. God never compels anybody to do evil. Many passages, including Ezekiel 33:11, feature God pleading with wicked people, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, lest you die. Paul says to Timothy that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. So then what could it possibly mean when God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, I want to make a few observations about that. First of all, as we read through this story of Exodus, there's going to be about nine times in which we hear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's going to be another nine or so times in which we hear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
for the first five plagues that God's going to pour out. We're going to read Pharaoh hardened his heart. God called Pharaoh to repent from his sin of oppressing God's people. Pharaoh rebelled. He hardened his heart. And then after Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his heart, we begin to read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart just as God predicted he would back here in chapter 4. And I think what's happening is something very similar to what we read about in Romans chapter 1. If you got your Bible, you might flip over there for just a second. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about the downward spiral of sin. When we choose evil, it has terrible effects on our lives. And when I choose evil or you choose evil, it actually has a terrible effect on our souls. Only God's restraining grace has preserved any of us from being totally given over to evil due to the evil choices that we have made. But Romans chapter 1, when it's describing humanity's rebellion against God, begins to describe God's judgment upon human rebellion. And it uses phrases like this. In verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. To impurity. People were rebelling against God, and by His grace, God was restraining them from the self destructive results of their own rebellion. But as they continued to rebel over and over and over again, the text says God gave them up. Those are three scary words, but we need to reckon with what the Word of God says. God gave them up. And then in verse 26, after describing more of their sin, it says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God's grace was restraining the effects of sin in human hearts and lives. But as human beings continue to rebel, God's judgment comes in the form of allowing human sin to have its effect of corrupting our passions and desires. Then again, in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Scary words, friends. Everybody say, God gave them up. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So here's a picture and maybe help you illustrate this. God wants to give us life. God wants to give us life. But we in our sin and our rebellion are pulling against God. We're rebelling, and sin leads to what? The wages of sin is? Sin leads to death. So I have this picture of we in our sin and rebellion are pulling, pulling, pulling against God's purposes for our life. And there's this precipice right here. There's a cliff. And at the bottom of the cliff is what? Death. And as we're pulling and pulling against God, thinking that we're pursuing our own happiness, but there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. God, by his grace, I just have this picture, there's like a rope holding us, and by his grace, he's restraining our rebellion. We're trying to pull ourselves off this cliff, and God is holding us back. And he's not just holding us back, but he's sending prophets and messengers to say the way of sin leads to death. But repentance and trusting in me leads to forgiveness and life. But we don't listen to the prophets and the messengers. So God sent his own son, Jesus, 
And Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sins and rises again and says, I'll forgive you of your sin and I'll save you and I'll heal you if you'll just turn to me and trust me. But human rebellion is such that a lot of us just keep pulling, pulling, pulling. And God is very gracious. He's very patient, but he does not make peace with the ongoing reality of evil in his universe. He's not going to let Pharaoh oppress those people forever. And so his judgment comes in the form of allowing sin to have its hardening effect in our lives. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That's what Romans 1 says. I think that's the same thing that Exodus is describing. This should, first of all, have a sobering effect in our hearts, just like it was supposed to do for Moses, I think. Every choice of obedience that I make by God's grace has an effect in my soul that like a little choice to, to choose love today, to choose humility, to choose service, to choose contentment over greed. That choice might be setting me up to win a spiritual battle six months from now that I don't know about. On the other hand, a little choice to give in to Pride and self-righteousness, lust, anger, whatever it may be today, may be seeding some strategic ground to Satan in our lives. Like Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't make room for the devil. And that ground, we're going to wish we had it back two years from now when we're in an intense battle. You see what I'm saying here? Now, we don't need to be scared in the sense of sitting under a spirit of condemnation, but this ought to evoke a little filial fear, a little fear of the Lord, which it says to us, this text I think should, should say to our hearts, God, I love you and I hate sin and I fear the thought of rebelling against you. Let me stay as close to you as possible. This ought to cause us to run back to the cross. Here's the good news. Despite all of my foolish and self-destructive decisions, I have not gone over the edge yet. And by God's grace, I can even say, by God's grace, I won't because Jesus Christ has died on the cross for my sins. And at the cross, there is healing and forgiveness and grace. That's true for you. Run to the cross. But this text isn't just a designed to evoke fear of the Lord, it's also designed to comfort us in this way. Here's the comfort. Evil people, even if they become really powerful, even if they become Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, cannot mess up God's good plan to save his people. The devil can't mess it up. No political leaders can mess it up. Even corrupt religious leaders cannot stop God from saving the world. God knows the future and rules with sovereign power over the events of human history. I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to just go real quick here and point, point out to you a couple other lessons, spiritual lessons that Moses is learning throughout these ups and downs, which you can meditate on throughout the week. Here's another lesson. God is learning, or God is teaching Moses, Moses is learning in verse 22 that God is a loyal and loving father who will protect and provide for his adopted children. This is the first time that the Bible refers to the people of God as his firstborn son, as his children. And the way that Israel became his children was by the choice of God. By grace, God chose Abraham when Abraham was living among pagan people. 
He didn't know God. And God chose Isaac and God chose Jacob and God did not give up on his promises even when the people rebelled. This is what the New Testament calls the grace of adoption. Everybody say adoption. What it means is if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we're God's kids, not because we deserve to be, but because God is gracious. If you want to study this, go study Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8. It's a major New Testament theme, and Jesus wants us to know that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, despite our rebellion, we have been brought into such a union with Jesus that God loves us. God the Father loves us with the eternal, unbreakable love with which he has always loved God the Son. And nothing can separate us from that love of God. And as we read right here in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and following, God loves his children with a fierce, unbreakable, steadfast love. He will protect and deliver his children. Moses needs to remember that. Moses is learning here that God's holiness and grace are both deeper than we have yet dared to believe. Verses 24 through 26 are super weird. I wish I had time to talk about them for a long time. But this is that moment where God told Moses to go. Moses starts going. And then immediately it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And the Lord approached him to kill him. This is not the only time this happens in the Bible. Think about Balaam. There's several stories in which God tells somebody to do something and they obey that command. But then they go and God comes and almost kills them. And I think the issue in each of these stories is somebody is trying to offer to God partial obedience. You see, Moses is obeying God's command to go back to Egypt, but he knows that God is the God of the covenant. And God gave his people the covenant sign in the Old Testament, circumcise your firstborn or circumcise all all the male children in your household. Moses has not done that. And now Moses is obeying God to go back to Egypt, but it's as if he thinks since I'm a servant of God, I get a free pass on this other area of my life to disobey God. Some of us, friends... God has has called some of us to do something for him, and we're trying to obey God with a partial obedience while holding on to sin and rebellion in another area of our lives. And I just want to say to you, friends, that is not going to work. Because God's standards of holiness and obedience, he doesn't play favorites. He holds all of us to the standard of obedience, which is why... Moses is experiencing the discipline of God. We don't know what happened. You can imagine something like Moses gets struck down with some disease and they were about to get to Egypt and Zipporah sees this and somehow discerns that God is disciplining him. Maybe they've had a conversation about this circumcision thing. I don't know. But his wife leaps into action, circumcises the son. I don't know how old this poor kid was, but I bet he wishes that his father had not delayed his obedience. You know what I'm saying? So... He's circumcised, and then uh, Zipporah identifies her husband with this obedience and says to Moses, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, which seems to be saying, I'm so glad you're my husband and your life is saved because we've been obedient to the covenant of grace now. And God, who was about to kill Moses, just forgives him just like that. It's over. It's done with. It never comes up again. Followers of Jesus, we could just say he is more holy and he is more gracious than we have yet dared to believe. Jesus says in Matthew 5:48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. His standards are very high. And yet Jesus 
is filled with grace for sinners. He died on the cross so we could be forgiven. Last one, and I'm done. God's holiness and grace are both deeper than we've yet dared to believe, we just said. And finally, I don't want to skip this one because it's so good. In verses 27 through 31, Moses is learning a lesson that he and the people of God are going to need to remember and that we need to know today. Namely, God is in the business of healing old wounds. Even wounds that we thought were no longer healable. I bet Moses did not think that reconciliation was still possible in his family. And those elders of Israel, when they hear the good news of God's grace, I mean, it's been centuries that they've been waiting for redemption. Old wounds, old wounds of family brokenness and family separation, old wounds of poverty and oppression. And yet here is God. He has not forgotten his people. He loves them and he's healing. And I just want to say to some of us, I mean, some of us in the room have some old wounds that we're living with. Family wounds, relationship wounds, abuse wounds, betrayal wounds. And I don't know, since I'm not God, I don't know about some of these wounds, if they're going to be healed in this life or in heaven. But if we trust in Jesus Christ, friends, every wound will be healed. Every wound will be healed. Disciples of Jesus, we're on an adventure of obedience. We're on an adventure. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. But God is going to be constant. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On the good days, God will be faithful. And on the bad days, God will be faithful. On the good days, the grace of Jesus will be sufficient for us. And on the bad days, the grace of Jesus will be sufficient for us. On the good days, our labor will not be in vain. And on the bad days, our labor will not be in vain. On the good days, God will be working in us to make us more like Jesus if we trust him. And on the bad days, God will be working in us to be more like Jesus if we trust him. Throughout it all, ups and downs, God wants us to know God. He wants us to have the supreme joy of fellowship with him. And that's available for us today. We're about to go to the Lord's table. And I don't know where you are, friends. If you're a Christian on an up day or a Christian on a down day, or maybe you're driving through the plains of Kansas and you feel like you've been on a plateau for a while. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I want to know this God, but I do not have a relationship with this God yet. And I would say... For all of us, the answer is just come back to Jesus. Come back to the cross. Confess your sins. Lay your burdens on his shoulders and trust in him. He has redemption and grace for all of us. Let's pray as we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper. Our Lord God, we thank you for being a God who is faithful in our good days and our bad days. And I pray for myself and for these saints that we would have eyes to see you and to discern your presence and to learn the spiritual lessons you want to teach us in times of victory and in times of failure and struggle. I pray that your spirit would bring these words to our remembrance in hard times, difficult circumstances. When others sin against us and when we sin and fail, Lord, that you would remind us of your unfailing grace. Please remind us in a fresh way now as we go to take the Lord's Supper. Bless the 
bread, bless the cup, bless our hearts to receive your word with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.